1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Josh, if you want to come on up, I'll pray for you. God, we're so thankful for the grace and mercy that you have given us in Jesus, the unbelievable, incredible good gift that we just read about that is kept for us in heaven. I pray that you would be with Josh tonight. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts tonight. You would illuminate your word for our understanding that we would leave here compelled to change God, to grow and to be stirred by your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks, Billy. All right. Y'all can be seated, of course. Um, well, like Billy said, uh, hi, my name is Josh Matica. I'm one of the members here at Coram Deo Church. I'm sure some of y'all, if you've been around, have seen me uh, giving the welcome or running around, putting up pipes and drapes before and after uh, the gathering. I know I've been able to meet most of you in this room, but uh, as it is with short times together, I may not have been able to get to know you. So today, before we really dive into the passage, I want to tell you something about myself that I think will give you a better picture of who I am. And that is that I, maybe like a lot of us in this room, spend way too much time on social media and online. Now, part of this is that being online is part of my job. Uh, like Billy said, I work at EJ Victor, which is a furniture Mac manufacturer here in Morganton. I'm the social media coordinator there. I'm also a writer and editor of a sports website. And on top of this, I really like to write about stuff that I love, movies, art, like I said, sports. One of the best ways that you can do this is to stay up to date by following online, who's saying what, what's the latest on this, scores, all that. But I think the way that I use social media as a distributor and in information of articles and information is it's probably not what the creators of all those various sites originally intended them to be. Ultimately, whichever social media you prefer to use is a way for you to express yourself or at least parts of yourself to the world around you. What's your thought on the latest movie or album or college basketball game? You can tweet it. Uh, taking an awesome vacation to Disney World and you really want to make everyone you know jealous, you can take a picture and put it on Instagram. Thank you for that, Billy and Hannah. Uh, you got an opinion that you really want everyone to know about? Slap it on Facebook and watch the comments go wild. Maybe you don't think of social media this way, but it's an impossible fact to escape. The way you live your life online says something about you. Literally, one of the first things that you do when you make a new page is you fill out a bio, which is obviously short for a biography. If you went through my bios on social media, you kind of get a rounded, maybe not wholly accurate picture of me. I like movies and sports. I'm a writer. I live in North Carolina. One of the things I've noticed and think a lot about, though, 
is how different I must come across to people on different platforms that I'm a part of. On Instagram, I tend to be kind of up in the clouds and wordy. I really care about aesthetics and nice looking pictures, so I don't post a lot, but when I do, I can be really um, wordy and kind of strange, I think. On Twitter, I'm a little more opinionated and probably in some of my worst moments, a little aggressive. And on Facebook, I'm just kind of quiet. When I post, it's mostly about my writing or a big life event that I'm doing, like I'm doing, like we just had a baby, which I'll talk a little bit about more later when we bought a house. And while each of these social medias is representative of a part of me, in no way do they tell the whole story of who I am. And ultimately, I think there might be something just a little bit wrong with that. If you spent any time here, uh, and if you were here, obviously now, Billy talked about this, you've probably heard the name of our church plant mentioned and re-mentioned. It's Coramdeo. It's a Latin phrase meaning in the presence of God or before the face of God. And if you think about it, Coramdeo is how everyone lives their life, literally, saved or not. The God of the Bible is not only all-powerful and all-knowing, he's also everywhere. So yes, we are always living before the face of God, literally, but is that really what it means? Is that really the totality of what it is to live a life of Coram Deo? I'd say that it's not. Instead, I'd say that a life of Coram Deo is a life that is defined by the gospel in every way, shape, and form. When I was sermon prepping this week, the word defined kept giving me a little bit of pause. What does it mean to be defined by something? This would be a great place for uh, Webster's Dictionary defines uh, allegory, but um, obviously anybody who's ever written a paper starting with that, you know, that's a bad grade waiting to happen. Um, so say you were at a dinner party or a work party, um, or you're just in a place where no one really knows you or you don't know a lot of people, and someone you've never met walked up to you and said, who are you? So setting aside how unsettling that might be to have someone just ask you that right away um, in such an intense question, think about how you would answer that. I guess uh, many of us would start with our name and then probably what we do for a living. Maybe you'd get more specific if you're really passionate about your hobbies and the ins and outs of your job. Um, maybe you don't start with your vocation and hobbies, though. Maybe you start with your family or your friends. You want to gush about your spouse or your beautiful children who are always kind and obedient and quiet. Um, maybe you're really proud of the friends that you have and the people that you know, so you'll just talk about them. A lot of the times, we define ourselves by two different ideas, the things that we do and the people that we know. But ultimately, are those really satisfactory ways that you want people to know who you are? I mean, you may be really proud of your job and the things that you do, but what happens when you have a bad day or a bad week at work? Worse, what if you lose your job? You may really love the hobbies that you have, but how much are they really satisfying you? As a lover of movies, I've had weekends, and this is going to sound like a lot, and it is, where I've watched as many, 15, as many as 15 movies in four days. Let me tell you, you need sunshine at some point. You can't just sit with a bright screen glaring at you all the time. You have to stop. And you may love your family, but do you really want people to know you for all the times that your kids have disobeyed you? Or maybe how you and your spouse have been fighting a lot lately. Do you really want those things to be your defining characteristics? The things that we hold up in our lives as these defining traits will never be enough to satisfy us and give us a life that is fulfilling. But what if we allowed the gospel to define our lives? How would that rework the way that we answer that question? And take that first way we define ourselves by the things that we do. The gospel tells us that it's not what we do that's important, but rather what God has done for us. If we look back in Ephesians 2, which we covered a few weeks ago, we're going through Ephesians right now, and this is kind of like a, a pit stop in that. 
In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The wording of this passage is crystal clear. God made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It says that twice. He raised us up with him. This is not your own doing, but is the gift of God. The things that we do pale in comparison to the work that God has done for us through Jesus' death at the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And what about when we define ourselves by the people that we know? Well, the gospel takes the pressure off of them and instead puts it on the shoulders of Jesus, who is more than willing, more and uh, more than willing and able to take it. In Romans 8:31, Paul states, "Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us." Your husband or wife and your friends may love you, and they might be a worthy advocate for you in the court of public opinion, but Jesus is the only one who sits before the throne of the eternal almighty father interceding for you on your behalf. And he's able to do so because he died on the cross to take your sins so that when the father looks at you, he sees his perfect son. So we see that the gospel reworks the ways that we look to define ourselves. But how does that play into our lives, though, the way that we live and breathe and go about Sunday through Saturday, 52 weeks a year? Well, that's where I want to get back to our text today, to see that a quorum day of life has three distinct things that define it. First, a quorum day of life is secure. Second, a quorum day of life will involve trials. And third, a quorum day of life will be joyful. First, let's look at how a quorum day of life is secure. And we'll start by rereading 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last time. If you're like me at all, you tend to walk through life always angling for a sense of security that can be in money or your possessions or maybe your reputation, the way that people think about you. We feel like if we're able to build up enough capital in any one of these things, or maybe multiple, that we'll be safe from the pitfalls of life. If I have enough money, I'll always be able to meet my family's needs. If I have enough stuff, I'll always be entertained or I'll always be the life of the party. If I have a good enough reputation or enough friends, I'll always have the approval of those around me. But we see that in Peter, that as Christians, we have a better security. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the eternal, almighty, perfectly holy, righteous, and powerful God deciding to save you just because he can and he wants to. Rest in that truth, Christian, that God the Father, not you, has caused you to be born again. We also see that we are called, as a result... It's wholly untouchable, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our inheritance, as we'll see later in the text, in eternity with Jesus Christ, the salvation of our souls, cannot be broken or defiled in any way. Think about the things you put your security in again. Is it your family or friends? Um, I hate to break it to you. This isn't going to be a new truth, but everyone's a human. 
And what is the one certainty with every human that has ever lived or ever will live? We're all going to die. And I know that's a lot, but we are. The security that we have as a result of God's work, though, that will last forever. Untouched by the consequences of sin and death. How about your reputation? We see it every day in the world around us. Everyone's reputation at some point is defiled or tainted. You can't go a day in this life without learning about someone who has fallen down from the pedestal. And at some point, you're going to screw up, and you're going to screw up big, and someone's going to find out. So what do you do then when you don't have your own two legs to stand on? Well, why don't we turn to Christ? In Revelation 5, verses 1 through 5, John gives us this sweeping, beautiful picture of the only one who is worthy and able to stand up on his own merits. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Only Jesus, friends. Only Jesus is able to stand before the Father and earn his approval. And you know what he's done? He's turned around and given that approval to you. Finally, what if we put our trust in money? I've seen this a lot in my own life recently. When my wife and I moved to North Carolina, like Billy talked about, we were doing really well in Missouri. We both had good jobs. We were paid decently, had good benefits, and we had a good amount of income that we could spend. It was a college town, so everything was really competitive. Prices were low. But we moved halfway across the country, which eats into your savings just a little bit. And uh, I was unemployed for four months. I didn't get the job at EJ Victor until four months after we moved there. And not long after I got that job, we got pregnant. And any parent or any person who's been around a child will tell you, as cute as they are, they're really expensive. Lots of your money goes to that kid. And God has been faithful, but he's also been teaching us firsthand that money is not going to be there to save us all the time. Eventually, the bills are going to pile up, and your car is going to need to get fixed out of the blue. And then you get a ticket, and your checking and savings accounts start to get smaller and smaller and smaller until you think a stiff breeze might blow you over. The inheritance that God the Father gives us in Jesus, though, never fades, never gets smaller. Think of Matthew 6, where Jesus tells his disciples to store up their treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. What do we see there? Moth and rust do not destroy. Our inheritance in Christ is secure from the ways that sin has affected this world, and thieves cannot break in and steal. Our inheritance is secure from the effect of sin on humans, ourselves, and others. Through God's incredible mercy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are born again to a living hope that is completely and utterly unfazed by the effects of sin on the world. And while the world secures itself in lesser temporary things, the gospel redefines where we find our ultimate security. And because we have the security in the work of the Father through his Son and his Spirit, we're able to face the second truth of this passage today, which is this, a quorum day of life will involve trials. If we look at verses 6 and 7 again, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we face a little bit of a different context than the people to whom Peter was writing. In 2020, we may still face these outbursts of persecution, but personal violence in America is still a little bit frowned upon. Um, So while we're likely to face some of those different types of trials that they may have faced at that time, we're more likely to face them under the umbrella of what we'll call cultural pressure for today. This sort of pressure, it's often more subconscious than it is conscious, though. Think about your day-to-day habits. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? What do you do when you're driving to work and from work every day? What are you listening to? What are you telling yourself? Where do you eat your meals? Are you at the table? Are you at your couch in front of the TV? Or are you doing anything else while you're eating? Are you scrolling on your phone? What's the last thing you do before you go to bed at night? Or what are you doing in the 30 minutes prior to falling asleep? The things that we do every day are constantly shaping and reshaping the way that we respond to the world around us. And in turn, the way that we're going to respond to trials that Peter has said that we're going to face. One of the ways that sin reshapes our view of trials is that we become convinced in our hearts The trials are evil, and we need to avoid them at all costs. Stay away and try to avoid that God is trying to break us under his will in some effort to find out whether or not we're worthy of his love and mercy. And when we think of trials this way, the goal becomes not to find the ways that God may be bringing out the genuineness of our faith, but simply white-knuckle through it. Survive it. You can do this by seeking comfort. How much Netflix are you watching in a weekend? I know that hits me a lot. How much time do you spend browsing over your fantasy football lineups or your sports scores? How much time do you dedicate to scrolling through Instagram to marvel at the glamorous lives of influencers? Or on Facebook, trying to find the latest argument in which to insert yourself into? Ultimately, though, the comfort of those things fades, and we're off to the next thing. Just to dull the pain of whatever we're going through. And you can also do this by seeking power or control. How do I grab the reins of my life and make sure that my destiny and my trajectory is in my own hands? You can start maybe strictly controlling your health or your budget to the point where you're obsessing over every single little detail. I've been rebudgeting our home lately, so I kind of know what that looks like. This may help you feel in control for a little bit. But what happens when your diet and your exercise can't fend off a scary diagnosis? Or maybe your strict budgeting doesn't account for a disaster or some inexplicable financial tragedy. Again, the ways that we choose to respond to trials will ultimately form who we are and how we're molded by cultural pressure. Satan, our enemy, does not want us to respond to hardships in a gospel manner. He lies to us, telling us, you can weather this storm if you just ignore the pain for a little while longer. Just hit next episode. Or you can take control of your life if you just foresee every circumstance. But we know from earlier in this chapter that in trials, God is not testing us to see if we're worthy of his love and mercy. He has already acted upon his mercy by causing us to be born again to a secure hope. So what's the purpose of our trials? Peter says that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is using trials to refine our faith as part of the good work he is continuing in us until the day of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. One of the more Christian-y words that we often use as a synonym of trial is the word tribulation. The word comes from the word tribulum, which is what Roman farmers used to call a piece of equipment that they would roll over their crop to separate sheaves of wheat from the husks. Author and pastor David R. Helm 
reference this in a commentary of 1 Peter. Do you ever feel as if you are under the inescapable weight and the force of the tribulum? If so, Peter wants to remind you that no thresher has ever operated his tribulum for the purpose of tearing up his sheaves. The thresher's intentions were far more elevated than that. The farmer only wanted to call out the precious grain. And as it is with the ancient farmer, so it is with God. Like precious grain and precious gold, God has no intention of crushing you or melting you beyond repair. No, God's plan is to bring out his glory in you. I find myself often praying that God would make me look more like Jesus. Sometimes it's the only thing I know how to pray. But when I consider how deeply ingrained sin is in my own heart, how can I expect that process to not include some sort of pain? I'm not saying you should actively like throw yourself in front of buses and try to put yourself in financial ruin, or you should actively pursue these things. But when trials come, don't try to run. Instead, know that it's your father making you look more like Jesus and lean into him. Our instinct upon encountering trials should be the knowledge that they are part of this Coram Deo life. We can react with the knowledge of our security, of our imperishable, undefiable, unfading hope that awaits us. And we can be joyful because that's the third part of living a Coram Deo life, according to 1 Peter. A Coram Deo life will be joyful. Let's look back to 1 Peter once more. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I've already referenced this, but for those of you who may not know, my wife and I welcomed our first child into the world a little more than five months ago. You may have seen him uh, around here, um, the gathering here and there. He's got his mom's big blue eyes and he's got a really funny little swirl that everyone likes to point out on the front of his head. Um, I love him fiercely, and I love him desperately, but I have to confess that I don't always feel joy when I'm with him, or and I haven't always felt joy when I'm with him. So my wife stopped working full-time after Thomas was born, stopped working completely, so that she could stay home with him for a little while and raise him and be with him. And God bless her. She's the best mom in the world, and she loves that little boy with all of her heart and strength. But all parents know you eventually you got to get out of the house. You can't just spend 24 hours a day cooped inside those walls, you're going to go crazy. Over time, we've been trying more and more like evenings and afternoons or maybe just a few hours at a time where she'll get out of the house or she'll just take some time to herself, go in our room and read a book. I'll stay with Thomas. I'll feed him. I'll play with him. I'll put him down for his bedtime or naps. And anyone who knows us really well will likely be aware of how some of those times have gone. Uh, I think there's still a little bit of milk on his dresser from one night when I threw his bottle across the room because he just would not eat. He would not go to bed, and I was so mad, so I threw his bottle. I'm really ashamed of that, but there's no shame in Jesus Christ, so hooray for that. Yes, those nights have been hard, and they still are. Thomas has gotten to the point where he knows that I'm his daddy, and that's really great, but he also knows very, knows very well that I am not mom. So when he gets upset or overtired or scared, he immediately wants my wife. It doesn't matter if she's in another room or 15 minutes, in the next, uh, 15 minutes away in the next town over. He wants his mommy. This, like I alluded to, has led to a lot of hard nights, lots of tears, lots of spilled milk, lots of anger and frustration, and lots of fear. Fear that my son, who I would have died for when he was three weeks old inside his mom's belly, wouldn't love me. That he would never see me as a source of comfort. He may even be scared of me for the times that I've lost my temper around him. Again, by God's grace, things are getting better. He still takes, he'll take bottles from me now more often, and I'm able to put him down for his naps pretty regularly, 
We still have some trouble going down for bedtime, but mommy usually helps out with that. But we'll get there. We'll get there. We're doing it. You know what those long nights and evenings are cultivating within me, though? Joy. I know that by sitting with my son when he cries and holding him when he's screaming or simply putting his pacifier back in his mouth at night, we're building a bond. And every time I come home from work and he gives me a big smile, he laughs at me, the feeling is inexpressible. This is the type of joy that we're called to respond to in the midst of trials. A joy that comes from knowing that the end result of those trials is the security that we have in Christ. If we look at James 1, we see him encouraging believers in this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we consider that our security lies in an imperishable inheritance that is given to us by the Father's work and mercy and is held for us in heaven, and that trials aren't meant to crush us but to bring out the purity of our faith, I mean, what do we have to worry about, right? We don't need to carry around the weight of our trials and how they'll affect us in the long run because we know what the long run looks like. Yes, there will be momentary sorrow and trials will be hard to endure in the constraints of this sinful world, but we know that our ultimate fate It's secure. How can that not move us to joy above all else? Now, I think there's a tendency amongst humans to think of joy as this sort of hyperbolized happiness. Uh, And you smile a lot and you dance a lot and you whatever you do when you're happy. That's your guys stuff. But I want to be clear. That's not exactly what we're talking about here. Joy is deeper. Joy, in fact, transcends emotion in a way because it doesn't override or amplify our emotions. It informs them. Listen to the words of Marshall Siegel. He wrote uh, in a Desiring God article back from 2018 in which he's talking about what it looks like to suffer trials joyfully. Real life doesn't have to be put together and smiley, not with Paul, not with David, and not in you or me. It is just as often tear-stained and worn out, crawling after God with whatever strength and longing we can muster. Our joy will prove strong and durable, even invincible, because God will keep us. But it will run low and feel fragile along the way. God looks just as magnificent in the desert as he does at the banquet table. Our desperation for him in the hardest days glorifies him every bit as much and even more than our delight in him when all is well. We can expect to see more of him when we have less to hold on to here. Jesus tells us that those who mourn will be blessed because they will ultimately be comforted. You can respond in your trials with joy, knowing that Jesus will comfort you now and throughout eternity. I'll admit that uh, one of my favorite all-time worship songs is based in this passage, and I didn't even realize it until I got to this point in writing the sermon. I was like, oh, I thought about that. And I'm not going to sing it to you. I know that's a a preaching faux pas, uh, but I I promise you I won't. But I want you to listen to the words. We don't have to bear the load. We don't have to have control. We are free from guilt and shame because when he rose, he left death in its grave. By God's great mercy, we have been born again because Jesus Christ is alive. Our living hope is in our inheritance because Jesus Christ is alive. No grip of fear, no sting in death. By his mercy, we have been born again because Jesus Christ is alive. Uh, At one of the churches that I used to go to, the one we moved uh, from Missouri, we often sing the song on Easter morning and I'd, I'd always cry all the time, literally all the time. I'm finding that as I grow, not only in age, but in faith, I'm finding more and more joy in the simple truth of the gospel. That by God's great mercy, I have been born again because Jesus Christ is alive. I don't have to bear the load. 
I don't have to have control. I am free from guilt and shame. No grip of fear, no sting of death, all because Jesus Christ is alive. And ultimately, aren't these the worst outcomes of our trials? That we would believe the lies of comfort and control. That we would feel guilt and shame over our sin. That fear would grip us and death would ultimately take us. And they seem to pale in comparison to the security we have and the joy that we can respond to with trials. So as we go from this place, I want to ask you again, what defines you? And I'll ask you a second question this time. What is the end goal of defining yourself by a person or a job or a hobby or a reputation? Is it to find comfort or a salve in the midst of a struggle? Is it to bolster your security or reputation and take control of the situations in life that you think you can control? I know I may be young, but I promise you, those things are never going to satisfy you. They're always going to leave you looking for something else. Instead, let us live a life before the face of God, one that is defined by the gospel. You will be more secure than you could ever dream of, and your inheritance is living and protected by the God who saved you out of his goodness and mercy because he wanted to. When you face trials, you can know that Father is not testing to see how worthy you are, but he's making you more like him holy and righteous. And you can do all of this with a joy that is unshakable and informs all times of life, happy, sad, and everything in between. This, my friends, is the Quorum Deo life that God has prepared for you. Won't you rest in it? Let's pray. Lord, I'm pretty overwhelmed most of the time by the way that I respond to things. The the anger that I have when my son won't uh, obey me, even though he's five and he doesn't know what's going on, the way that um, I respond when I'm bored, the way that I look for comfort and control and all these things. But man, this passage was so good for my heart to know that I have security in you, not only a better security that can do everything that these temporary lesser things cannot, but also one that is enduring forever in you. One that I can respond to with joy, knowing that in trials, you are not trying to crush me and trying to break me, but Lord, you're just forming me into who you have always wanted me to be. And Lord, we can all say that about ourselves in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go, we would remember that. We would remember the gospel. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.